Have you ever had a, an experience in your life where you made a really bad decision, <clears throat> maybe the wrong choice, or you handled a situation poorly, and as a result, you paid a price for it? You ever experienced that? Of course, I think in those moments in life, there's no denying that the negative outcome, the, the ramifications that we live with are a direct consequence of that mistake or that bad decision or poor choice. And probably most of us, if not all of us, I think if we're honest with ourselves, can recall a situation like that, some kind of hardship that we've experienced in our lives that was a direct result of our own error or a lapse in good judgment or even, even a willful choice uh, to sin. When I was just a little kid, I was five or six years old, my hero was Evil Knievel. Do you remember him? You guys that are my age or older, he was like the coolest thing ever and I wanted to be Evil Knievel. And so I was in the living room and we had this couch, and it was a wood-framed couch with cushions. And I was running across the living room and diving, pretending I was Evil Knievel and landing on the couch. And my mom and dad were in the kitchen, and mom kept coming in and saying, Robbie, stop jumping on the couch. You're going to get hurt. And I just kept doing it. And so eventually she walked in, and her tone had changed. She was very stern, and she said, I've told you, and now I'm not going to tell you again. This is your last warning do not jump on the couch again. And she turned around and went back into the kitchen. And I remember standing there thinking to myself, just one more time. And so I took off running. And because this was my grand finale, my last jump of the day, I was going to make it a good one. And I jumped from further back than I had been. And of course, I didn't make the couch. My face went straight into the corner, uh, the wood frame of the couch, and it split my face open. And so my parents took me to the hospital, and uh, I had skin grafts from my hip and uh, stitches, and they had to do all of this work to put my face back together. That's why I look this way. <coughs> <laughs> and I had all of these stitches for weeks around my eye, and the doctor said, you know, another half inch, you probably would have lost your eye. I had to wear an eye patch made out of bandages while it healed. I was fairly restricted in what I could do during that time. And of course, there was plenty of pain uh, and a scar while everything was healing. But even at that early age, I could not say, why me? Why is this happening to me, right? Because even as a kid, I knew exactly why me. It was because of my willful choice to disobey my parents and do what I knew I was not supposed to do. I don't think there's any denying that there are times when we experience pain and suffering as a direct result of the choices that we've made. There are diseases that we can contract by using illegal drugs or having promiscuous sex or when we, uh, we don't pay attention to our diet, when we eat poorly or, or just simply by not taking care of our bodies in general. We can become very ill. There are people in prison because of crimes they've committed. There are uh, plenty of people who have lost their life savings uh, by gambling it away, right? Obviously, there's a lot of suffering and pain and trouble that we face in this world as a direct result of our choices. And I imagine that most of us can relate to that at, at some level. However, there are also times in our lives when we go through something very difficult and yet we cannot make any clear sense of it. We, we cannot point to an obvious cause for that hardship. There doesn't seem to be any a correlation with that struggle and any particular decision that we've made. And maybe you've experienced that as well, a time where there hasn't been anything in your life that you're aware of that you can point to during hard times and say, that is why this is happening to me. 
right? I know I personally have had some tough experiences in my own life where my conscience was clear, my heart was right, and my motives were pure, and yet I was going through hell on earth and couldn't tell you why. And it is in those moments when we're locked in a really tough battle, when it, when it feels like we're groping our way through the darkness without any explanation as to why this is happening to us. It is in those moments that we often ask the question, why me? Why am I going through this? What did I do wrong? Why do I deserve this? Will I ever get past it or how do I make it stop? It is then when we're suffering the effects of, of that pain or that fear or confusion or loss or uncertainty while at the same time our conscience is clear, our heart is right, and our motives are pure. It is in those times that we may be asking the wrong questions. You see, because when we ask, why am I going through this? What did I do wrong? Why do I deserve this? Will I ever get past it? How do I make it stop? Every one of those questions has a singular focus in common. Me, right? Why am I going through this? What did I do wrong? Why do I deserve this? Will I ever get past it? How do I make it stop? But those may be the wrong questions to ask because it may not be predominantly or primarily about us. I know it sure can seem that way when we're going through it, but the fact is this plan that God has created for each one of us, by the way, before any of us were born, is bigger than any one of us. Psalm 139, 16 says, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. All right, when it, when it comes to our lives, there is always something bigger going on than just what we're personally experiencing at any given moment, always. Because this life, our lives are a part of something bigger than any one of us alone, which means that there may be times when we suffer, when we hurt, when we struggle to understand that we don't necessarily need to change our behavior. We may simply need to change our perspective. Sometimes we need to ask different questions and sometimes we simply need a new perspective, okay? Sometimes why me will not lead us to the answers that we're seeking. And so today we're going to look at one of those very situations in our continuing story as we work through the gospel according to John. As Jesus and his disciples encounter a blind man on the Sabbath, and in addition to creating quite a stir, Jesus' response to the suffering of this man and the questions that his disciples and others are asking in regard to his condition stands to teach us much about our perspective anytime we face difficulties in our own lives that seem to have no clear or obvious cause. Sometimes we need, to, we need to ask different questions and sometimes we may just need a new perspective. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's pick up the story right where we left off last week at John chapter 9. And we'll start with the first two verses. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so now these first two verses really set the tone for the rest of the, the chapter in terms of the misunderstanding involving the relationship between personal suffering and personal sin. And it applies just as well in our own lives today, anytime we ask the wrong questions when we're facing personal suffering. And so Jesus and his disciples see this man who's been blind from birth, it says, and they ask him what would seem to us 
to be a very peculiar and misguided question. They ask him, whose sin is responsible for this man's blindness, his own or his parents? And the reason that can seem really strange to us, if you think about it, is because it says that the man was born blind. And so if it was his own sin that caused the blindness, he would have had to commit the sin before he was born, right? Which again, seems a strange question to ask to us, but in fact, in the first century, Jewish rabbis believed and taught that there was always a direct cause and effect relationship between suffering and sin. And more to the point, there were those who believed in the pre-existence of souls and the possibility that those pre-existent souls could sin. And in terms of the parents, there are also ancient rabbinical writings that we have uh, that, that show spiritual implications for unborn babies based on their parents' behavior. For instance, it was said that if a pregnant woman went and worshipped in a pagan temple, that her unborn fetus was considered to be participating in those pagan rituals, and therefore the unborn child was guilty of the same sin as the mother. That seems fair, right? And so although strange to us today and misguided in this case for sure, this question by the disciples would not have been all of that out of the ordinary at the time. And of course, uh, there is a substantial amount of evidence in the biblical record to support the idea that personal afflictions were visited on individuals because of their own sin or even the sins of their parents. And so the, the, the initial idea that this man's blindness could have been caused by his own sin isn't in and of itself really an unreasonable theory. However, where we get our thinking into a, a theological quagmire, uh, uh, where we get into wrong thinking, is when we assign all suffering as the result of personal sin, which in keeping with first century rabbinic views was exactly what Jesus' disciples were doing here. And it's a page right out of the book of Job. Job's friends came to the conclusion that he had to be the worst sinner in the world because he was suffering worse than anyone else. For them, there was a direct correlation between the degree of severity of Job's suffering and the degree of severity of his sin. But of course, if you read the book of Job, you find that nothing could have been further from the truth. In fact, in Job 1.1, he's described as a man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So obviously, we can experience suffering even of the worst kind and to the greatest degree, and it not be a result of a specific individual sin in our own lives. Now, just to clarify, as a, a side note, we know that all suffering ultimately is the result of sin in our fallen world, right? Had there been no sin from the beginning with Adam and Eve, there would be no suffering in the world. So from that standpoint, all suffering is a result of sin. But we're talking about specific suffering in the life of the individual, always being the direct result of a specific sin in the life of that same individual. And as we see in Job and in our story today, uh, that is definitely not always the case. And so we, we continue reading. And as we do, Jesus in his response sets the tone for the rest of the story concerning the question that we should be asking anytime we struggle or suffer in this life while we are living in obedience to God and his word, and also how to give a, a new perspective uh, when we find ourselves in this situation again. Let's read verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So according to Jesus, we can suffer 
through very serious circumstances, as serious as being blind your entire life for reasons that have nothing to do with personal sin. He says, this man has been allowed to suffer without sight from birth so that the works of God might be displayed in him, which is really the key to understanding suffering in our lives that is not a result of our own personal sin. When we ask questions like, why am I going through this? What did I do wrong? Why do I deserve this? Will, will I ever get past it? How do I make it stop? When we, when we ask those kinds of questions, we're making ourselves the focus. And of course, the natural tendency is to think, well, of course I'm making myself the focus, dummy. I'm the one that's suffering, right? I mean, that's natural for us. How many times, though, do you think throughout his entire life, how many times do you suppose this man must have wondered, why me? Why can all of the people around me see when I can't see anything? What did I possibly do to deserve this? How tormenting it must have been at times for him when everyone else was making their own way through life and he was utterly dependent upon others for even his most basic needs. In, in uh, ancient Palestine, blind people were completely cast down to the mercy that they could get from others. So they would situate themselves often near the sanctuary in the hopes that someone passing by would offer them some kind of help, any kind of help. It was demeaning. It was uncertain. It was often misunderstood, as we've already seen uh, by the disciples' question. It was lonely, and at times must have seemed altogether hopeless. And the truth is, when we suffer through all kinds of trials in our own lives, we often feel the same way, don't we? Suffering can be demeaning. It's often filled with uncertainty. It can feel like no one else understands what we're going through, and it can certainly be lonely and, and seem quite hopeless. It really is very difficult, I think, for most folks not to focus on ourselves when we're hurting. We certainly understand that, and yet Jesus comes along and turns this whole idea on its head. He says the reason this man has been allowed to live his entire life, his entire life, without sight is so the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, the ultimate focus and purpose of this man's suffering is to bring glory to God through his suffering. And so it's not that it has nothing to do with us when we struggle through hardship. It certainly does. It's just that we're not always the focus. Ultimately, it's about God that his works might be displayed in us, which is a completely uh, different approach to the subject of suffering in our lives and what seems natural to us. But according to Jesus, we at least sometimes suffer for the express purpose of him being glorified in us through our, through our suffering. And so the next uh, logical question, of course, is, well, how is God possibly glorified when we're hurting, when we're struggling, when we're going through a battle in our lives? How exactly is God glorified in that? And this is precisely where our response to that suffering becomes very important and comes into play. Let's continue reading verses 4 through 12. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Salom, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. 
The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Yet others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? But he said, I do not know. So Jesus performs another great miracle. He spits on the ground and he mixes it with dirt to make mud. And then he puts the mud on the men's eyes and sends him off to wash in the pool of Siloam. And all of that seems really strange to us. Uh, but again, there's great symbolism in every aspect of, his, of the work of Jesus that points to the work of the Messiah far beyond just physical healing. Um, just as we see God create new life out of the dirt. In Genesis, Jesus creates new life in this man's eyes out of the dirt. And that new life is not only physical, of course, but spiritual, as we'll see. In verse 5, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Just before he restores this man's eyesight, of course, bringing light into his otherwise dark world. In verse 7, he sends the man to wash in the pool of Siloam. And that pool, uh, which, by the way, was excavated in 1880, it was, was a part of a major water system built by Hezekiah. It was cut into the rock southwest of the city of David. And its water was sent by way of Hezekiah's tunnel from the Guyan Spring in the, the Kidron Valley. That's why the pool was given the name sent, according to verse 7, which we're told just after Jesus explains that he is the one who is sent by the Father in verse 4. He makes a symbolic connection between him and the living water. And if you remember, this is not long after he explained to the crowds at the Feast of Tabernacles back in chapter 7 that he was the source of living water. And interestingly enough, the water that was collected in the golden pitchers, if you remember, during that feast that was poured out daily at the altar was drawn from the pool of Siloam. The same water that Jesus tells the blind man to wash in. Can you, can you begin to see the tremendous amount of symbolism in this one healing miracle by Jesus? The works being displayed through this miracle reach far beyond the physical restoration of the man's eyesight. And this is the point at which he must choose how he will respond to Jesus. And it is, it is no small point. Let's just put ourselves in this man's sandals for a moment. He spent his entire life in complete blackness. And not because of any sin that he or his parents have committed. Treated like an outcast, a lesser human being, forced to beg for his very survival. By the religious members of his own community, he's labeled a great sinner, deserving of his plight to wander through life in darkness. Unable to care for himself, he lives out a very uneasy existence, entirely reliant upon the graciousness of people who are often not very gracious at all. Now, how easy would it be to become calloused toward others? If you were him, how easy would it be to become bitter, cynical toward the religious crowd, especially after being accused of suffering this blindness for sin you didn't commit by people whose own lives were defined by the very worst kind of hypocrisy. And yet they can all see just fine. How open do you think you would be to listening to anything that one more religious leader had to say to you. And yet along comes this rabbi, as his disciples referred to him, who spits in the dirt, 
makes mud, smears it on his eyes and tells him to go wash it off. In fact, uh, Jesus doesn't even tell him that he will be healed. Right? When he washes the mud off, he just says, go and wash in the pool of Salome. What a, what a deeply bizarre encounter this must have been. And I have to say, the only thing that is more unpredictable than what Jesus did is what the blind man did. He obeyed the voice of Jesus with no promise of a guaranteed outcome, let alone a promise of healing. And it was not an act, by the way, of some kind of great faith by the blind man. In fact, the man had no faith at all at this point, which we'll see in a moment. How many healings do we see in Scripture of people who didn't even know who Jesus was? They had no faith at all. Yet this man listens and obeys, even though he'd been so profoundly let down by the religious leaders that he'd encountered his entire life up to this point. You see, our healing isn't dependent upon our faith. Someone ever tells you you didn't get healed because you didn't have enough faith. They're either sorely mistaken or they're trying to sell you something. It's just not true. Many people were healed in Scripture who had no faith at all, just as this man did. Okay, let's not blow past the response here by this guy and miss the significance of it because he could have questioned Jesus first. He could have said, why am I going through this? He could have asked for some guarantees first. If I do this, will you promise to heal me? He could have stayed right where he was, wallowed in his own misery and not responded to this totally weird instruction from Jesus. But he didn't do any of that. In the midst of his blindness, he simply obeys the voice of Jesus. Okay, listen, I, I know that we all have questions, especially when we're going through a hard time, when we're hurting, when we're completely strung out and worn out and fed up with the struggle. But there comes a point for every one of us where we just have to be obedient to the voice of God, to the word of God, even if it doesn't make any sense to us at all. Before asking, Lord, why me? There are times when we should be asking, Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Sometimes the answer is as simple as remain faithful and worship me in the midst of your suffering. And when I say simple, I don't mean easy. I mean simple to understand. Yet at other times, his instruction can come through some very strange circumstances. And we just have to obey even when there isn't a guaranteed outcome or a clear picture before us. I'll tell you, in the midst of a great struggle in my own life about eight years ago, through a completely bizarre set of circumstances, and many of you know the story, so I won't go back through it. God told me and my family to sell all of our belongings, to walk away from all of our family and all of our friends and the career that I'd been building for a long time and move to Fairbanks, Alaska and go into full-time ministry. There were no guaranteed outcomes. In fact, there were times when I wasn't sure how we were going to make it, but we just did what we knew that God was telling us to do. And he led us into a whole new life that we never dreamed of. The key to that was not me understanding everything that was happen happening. In fact, it was not having all the details worked out perfectly. It wasn't even great faith on my part. There were days when I felt I had no faith at all. No, the key was simply obedience. Because the moment I finally said to God, what is it that you want me to do in the midst of my struggle that had gone on for a long time, he answered, and it wasn't what we expected, but we obeyed his voice and everything changed. 
everything for us changed in the most amazing and dramatic ways. First uh, Samuel 15:22 tells us that obedience is better than sacrifice. Sometimes when you don't understand, you still have to obey. When you find yourself locked in a battle, in a struggle in life, a period of suffering, and you know it's not because of a bad decision that you've made. Before you ask him why, ask him what. Lord, what do you want me to do? And then be ready to obey whatever answer he gives you. Okay, let's keep reading. Verses 13 through 23. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind, and that was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud in my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. What they're referring to uh, in the Old Testament ceremonial law, in Jewish ceremonial law, there were 39 prohibitions on the Sabbath, 39 things you couldn't do. One of them was kneading, like when you would mix water and flour and knead bread. And so this mixing, if you can believe it, of saliva and mud, even though he's healing a man from a lifelong uh, crippling blindness, was seen by these Pharisees as kneading in the dirt. And so to them, it was forbidden on the Sabbath. But yet others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. We were there. Uh, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know how uh, or who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So, there are now a lot of people getting dragged into the story, right? There isn't much faith between all of them combined. Even after Jesus performs this miracle, the formerly blind man doesn't know yet uh, that Jesus is the Christ. So he assumes that uh, Jesus is a prophet, which is not wrong. It's just not complete. And so he doesn't yet put his faith in Jesus as the son of God because he doesn't know that yet. The Pharisees were totally unconvinced that Jesus even performed a miracle until they hear it from the man's parents and even then, they're not willing to accept Jesus as the Christ, as verse 22 tells us. And the blind man's own parents play dumb when they're questioned by the Pharisees because they fear men more than they fear God. Jesus has just healed a man who's been blind his entire life, and the people who walk past him every day as he begs for mercy witness it. The religious leaders who claim to believe in the creator God investigate the claims until they have indisputable proof that the miracle is real. And so they decide to punish anyone who puts their faith in the one who performed the miracle. And the man's own parents pretend that they know nothing about who healed him or how it happened. How many years had they agonized over the blindness of their son? their own flesh and blood, the same two people who held him as a baby, knowing he couldn't see his own mom and dad, nor would he ever, the one who raised him and watched as he couldn't play like the other kids, 
the ones who couldn't teach him a trade or offer him uh, the life or prospects that other young men had. The same two people who have cared for him his entire life and suffered with him, having to watch their own son struggle through each day in total darkness. And here he is with perfect eyesight. Wouldn't you think that they would be so full of joy for their own son, so overwhelmed with relief and appreciation for what Jesus has just done for them, that they would be shouting it from the rooftops. And you know that they knew. What mother, what, what father, when they see their own child blind from birth, as he walks into the house and announces that he can now see, what parent wouldn't move heaven and earth to find out what had happened? They knew what happened, but they were afraid, as verse 22 tells us, their fear of men was greater than their faith in God, even after he healed their son. The faithlessness of people, even after God provides for them, is shocking. But again, it all comes back to a focus on me. When we care more about ourselves than we do about Jesus Christ, our faith will never be as strong as it could be because as long as we prioritize ourselves before him, we're actually giving ourselves credit for things that we don't deserve and could never earn. What part of the miracle could this man ever claim credit for? What part of his healing would ever require validation by the Pharisees? And who in the world do his parents think they are when they fear what men can do to them more than they thank Jesus Christ for what he's already done for them. It's astounding. And by the way, I'm one to talk. I can't tell you how many times I've struggled with my own faith for God to meet a need or to bring resolution to a tough situation or to provide an answer that I'm seeking even after all of the amazing things that I've witnessed him already do for me in my own life. We should be shocked and ashamed of ourselves when we doubt what God can do and fear men more than we doubt what men can do and fear God. And if that makes you feel bad, you're not alone because I'm preaching to myself here as much as I am to anyone. Let's keep reading verses 24 through 34. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, don't give glory to Jesus, give glory to, to God. They didn't believe he was God. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? This has to go down as one of the greatest answers of all time. He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> They reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And then the man answers, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This is actually a true statement. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? I'd say that he, he just did that in fact, but they cast him out. So the Pharisees continue this interrogation of the formerly blind man. He becomes very bold 
in his testimony, although he still doesn't know the true identity of the Messiah. But can you see how God is now beginning to draw him toward the truth? So he testifies as these religious leaders badger him about discrediting Jesus. He said, whether he's a, a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And even though Jesus has repeatedly told these Pharisees that he was sent from the Father in heaven, we've seen that over the last several weeks, they continue to question that. So the man says, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so at this point, they're so flustered by the man's testimony, all they can do is hurl insults at him. So they, they reiterate their belief that he was born blind because of a great sin in his life. When they say you were born in utter sin, you see, that wasn't, a, that wasn't a general statement about universal sin. They're reminding him that he must be a great sinner to have been born blind, and yet they're outraged because this beggar class member of the common people has just bested them at their own game. And he makes this argument and they can't deal with it, so they cast him out of the synagogue, which, uh, by the way, was a really big deal. That wasn't just a matter of physically throwing him out of the building. That was excommunication from the religious community. But even in that, he shows a tremendous amount of courage and even wisdom as he testifies before these Jewish leaders. Keep in mind, he has yet to put his faith in Christ. But he even points out the fact, he says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And interestingly enough, this man's healing is the first specific instance in the biblical record that we can find where a person is healed of blindness. From Genesis to John, there isn't a prophet, a priest, or an apostle who heals someone who has been born blind until now, which is significant because restoring sight to the blind was considered to be an expressly messianic activity in the Old Testament. Psalm 146.8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And then in uh, several places in Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 18, chapter 35, Verse 5 and chapter 42, verse 7, we find references to the messianic work of restoring sight, both physically and spiritually. And so, through the work of Christ in this man's life, even before he hears the gospel from Jesus himself, the Lord begins to draw him toward the truth, which is the higher purpose of miracles to begin with, to draw people to faith in Jesus Christ, all right? So, let's finish our story for this morning, and then we'll look at how this man responds to Jesus, how his perspective changes. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So finally, after all the stir about what Jesus had done, after all the debate, all the interrogations, after all of the, the accusations and threats and confusion, the true purpose of the miracle 
has its intended effect. The miracle testifies to the nature of Jesus as the Christ and the healed man puts his faith in Jesus and worships him. He worships him and boy does he ever. And when verse 38 says that the man worshiped Jesus, that word worshiped in the original text in the ancient Greek is the word proskuneo. It means to prostrate oneself, which is to lay face down on the ground before someone in reverent worship. Now keep in mind this was in public because verse 40 says there were Pharisees there who heard the conversation between Jesus and the man. So a man who has lived in obscurity his entire life through the work of Jesus in him now testifies to his friends. He testifies to his family. He testifies to the religious leaders. And then finally, he testifies in public to the power and divinity of Jesus as the Christ. In verse 36, when the man refers to Jesus as sir, the Greek word there is kurios, which actually means God or Lord. He was now publicly recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. Now, let's just take a moment to consider the full weight of what has just happened. There was a man who had suffered his whole life from the time he was born in a way that most of us couldn't even imagine. And not only because of his lack of sight, but because of the way he was treated by other people throughout his life, pitied and even avoided by others, assumed by the religious community to be a great sinner, a greater sinner than most, even though he didn't deserve that title. Left to beg for his own survival, helpless without the constant assistance of others to meet his most basic needs. And yet Jesus tells us that his suffering was not because of his own great sin, but it was in fact allowed by God in order that God's great works might be displayed in him. Keep in mind, the blind man didn't know any of that. Not until after he was healed and encountered Jesus. So he's lived his entire life physically, spiritually, and intellectually concerning his blindness in the dark, not seeing anyone, not knowing God, and not understanding any of it. If there was ever a person in the history of the human race who may be able to justify asking the question along with Job, why me? It had to be this man. And yet we see the answer to why as Jesus begins to go to work in his life. First, his physical blindness is healed. Then his spiritual blindness is healed. And as a result, he has this undeniably powerful testimony that leads many to Christ and even some of the Pharisees. Now, the testimony is the result of his work in us, and it's intended to lead others to the gospel. Our suffering is often the template that allows for him to do that work in our lives, and that is always intended to lead us closer to him. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And in suffering, people tend to either draw closer to God or further away. They almost never remain constant in relationship to him when they suffer, which is exactly what we see with this man and with the religious crowd in the closing verses of the story, albeit in two different directions. And just like this blind man, we have to choose when we're struggling when we're suffering, we have to choose whether or not to draw closer to him and then allow him to work in us. It's a different perspective. Joni Erickson taught us she was paralyzed from the, the shoulders down after a diving accident as a teenager. She was asked much later in her life, would you like to be healed? To which she replied, yes, 
but the most precious time of my day is when they put me to bed and I'm alone with the Lord. I'm so afraid that if I didn't have this paralysis, I wouldn't have that intimacy. You talk about perspective. You see, the answer that God gives us to the question, why? Why me? The answer from God is because I will. He says, I will draw close to you. I will provide for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will love you always and don't give up hope because I will do great things through you and ultimately through that work, the work that I do in you, in your suffering, from that you will have a testimony like no other. This is the perspective that we need when we're struggling. Look, if you're struggling today and you can clearly and honestly say that it's not because of a direct consequence of a specific sin, a, a bad decision, a poor choice, which that would always require repentance and restoration. But if your hardship is not because of anything directly that you've done, and maybe you're wondering, why me? Why am I going through this? His answer is, I will. Let's not waste it. As hard as hardship can be, let's remain faithful in those times. Let's be courageous, even when we don't understand why and cannot see any possible good outcome. Let's use that time of hardship to draw closer to him because what you can be certain of beyond any doubt is that God wants his great works to be displayed in your life and he will when we obey his voice even in times of suffering and loss and hurt and confusion and uncertainty. And, and by the way, the worst, uh, the worst the suffering may just mean the greater the miracle and the greater the testimony. That certainly seems to be what we see in Scripture. In fact, as uh, firsts go, not only was this man's healing the first specific instance of a blind person being healed in Scripture, it's also the only pre-crucifixion reference to the worship of Jesus in the gospel. And so I think it's significant. This man's suffering, which was quite extreme in terms of severity and duration, was allowed by God so that the overwhelming greatness of his work would also be manifested through him in unprecedented ways. He was the first to be healed of blindness. He also received the greater miracle of the healing of spiritual blindness. He was notably the first to worship Jesus in John's gospel. And he went on to testify to Christ's great work in his life, both publicly and privately, to great effect. And of course, we know that the greatest miracle of all time, the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, was preceded by the greatest suffering of all time as he bore the weight of the sin of the entire world. When we ask the question, why me? God's answer should give us a whole new perspective. He says, because I will. I will do great things in your life as you draw near to me. First Peter 2, 19 through 25, Peter writes, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Our suffering is never arbitrary. It's never pointless. God has a plan to give you an even greater testimony through your hardship. So draw near to him. Remain obedient to him. And know that when you're wondering, why me? He is right there with you. And he says, because my child, I will. Let's pray.